0: Welcome to the last class, and uh, I just wanted to say here we were talking about the Newton and Einstein stuff uh, in chapel today. Let's take a look at uh, Psalm 25, which was the psalm that Will Schumacher used. Perfect example of Newtonian and Einsteinian theology in one ver in one uh, uh, chapter, and uh, you've got these these deep monergistic tones uh, uh, which uh, say things like this. Um, Make me to know thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. Uh, Be mindful of your steadfast love, and so forth. Uh, uh, Remember not the sins of my youth according to your steadfast love for your goodness sake. Uh, however, uh, it also says, uh, To Thee, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in Thee. Let me not be put to shame. Uh, let not my enemies exult over me. Yea, let none that wait for me be put to shame. So, in other words, I am your child, and kind of on that basis, we have this relationship. Please do not uh, let me be put to shame. Um, let's see. Uh, Fifteen is interesting. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Um, so you have these two things within the same psalm. Uh, oh, uh, here, 20. Should have seen this before. Twenty. Twenty. Oh, guard my life and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in thee. So because I do take refuge, then you should deliver me. Uh, You you find this, but you find in this psalm also what you find in the other things like this. You tend to have Newton sort of precede Einstein. So that verse... um, Uh, Well, like the first one. To thee I lift up my soul, O Lord. In thee I trust, let me not be put to shame. Let none that wait for thee be put to shame. And then that's followed by, be mindful of your mercies and your steadfast love. So you get it just like that. Lots of Psalms are like this. I think it will really help you when it comes time to doing the exegesis. Yeah, Andy. I'm supposed to remind you about world views today. Ah, yes. Thank you. Uh, the question came up at the end of the last period about the relationship between um, Einstein, high energy physics, uh, relativity theory, and all that, and Newtonian. And the question was, was I actually imposing upon the text a contemporary reading? And I said, I'm always kind of fearful about that, but. Andy and I talked about this after class, and I want to share a little bit about this. Um, I think actually the direction of fit here is kind of the other way. And that is to say, Lutherans have always seen this inscrutable God. Um, There's no explanation for God's mercy. He's merciful uh out of his free will there's nothing in us that attracts god's grace we're not attractive in that sense we're dead in trespasses and sins and so you have that whole thing plus you have these other kinds of more interactive passages and as lutherans we have tried not to let one cancel the other out we just let the passages stand i think what's happened is when I started getting more acquainted with what was happening with physics, that I suddenly started to see the relationship that way. In other words, I had started with the Lutheran view, not started with the scientific view, started with the Lutheran view. Then when I read this, I thought, hey, that's really interesting. It's just like this. Or another way to put it is this way. The Lutheran position... Has always uh, endured attacks as being sort of intellectually and logically inconsistent. What happens when you look at it from the standpoint of the scientific understanding is you might say that there's intellectual warrant for taking this kind of Lutheran position. In other words, we aren't the only guys doing this. Scientists are having to do this. They actually live in a universe that is not sensible. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't really operate by cause and effect, and so forth. Well, if they can do that, it is not, let's put it this way, intellectually irresponsible to take that view of God and his activities. Okay, so I'm really kind of doing it that way as more of a latter-day explanation. Um, uh, uh, by the way, the, um, uh, one last thing before we get on to the text, crit, would you take your books, uh, your What Does This Mean text, and take a look at the diagram in chapter 14, this is the chapter on Lutheran confessional approach. And this is a kind of a famous diagram in a sense, at least around here, that Chuck Aaron and I came up with while we were riding back and forth to work, oh, you know, like say 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And... Uh, What this does is to say that in our authority model, Christ is the center. And around that circle, what you might call our interpretation of Scripture, with a coherence and an integrity principle. Now, what we mean by that is, the passages have to fit together contextually. However... Each must be defensible integrity principle within its own scriptural context. So you can't just run roughshod over passages that look to be hard passages. These two are always kind of ebbing and flowing with each other. You, you try to respect the integrity of each passage, but you try to, inspect it, uh, to respect the integrity of the whole. But all of this, in interpretation, circles around Christ as the center. Thus, Christum tribet. Now, here's what I want to put up on the board for you. What is interesting, it's not really in this book, is essentially the different model using this that you'd find out of the Reformed tradition And the Roman Catholic tradition. I'm going to expand this model now. Or I mean adjust it. I'm going to adjust it. So the Lutherans is coherence and integrity. Circle as a system around Christ. That's Lutheran. The reformed is the reverse. That is to say. Christ circles around kind of a more bare interpretation of the scriptures. Thus, it is specifically out of the Reformed tradition, never out of the Lutheran tradition, that you get dispensational millennialism. Where suddenly, God is doing activities that are long-lasting, important, and eschatologically determinative, apart from Christ. He's made some promises to Abraham or to the sons of David, or something like that. And remember I told you, like the one guy told me, I won't be satisfied until the Messiah literally sits on the throne in the city of Jerusalem. So, uh, our, you know, our view is 2 Corinthians one twenty: As many as are the promises of God, in Him is the yes. There are no independent promises. Reformed people don't think like that. They are much more what I like to call, instead of being Christocentric, they are logocentric. And concerned about kind of the bare promises apart from Christ. Well, what's Roman Catholicism doing? Roman Catholicism actually employs the Lutheran system. Like this, circling around Christ, okay? Oh, I gotta have, hold it, gotta have this out here on the margin. Okay? So it's the same there, except that whole system is rotating itself around the teaching magisterium of the church. That's really in the center. So you can appeal all you want to Christ as the fulfillment, Christ is the new humanity, Christ is the um, uh, second Adam and all the rest. But if the church says that the new humanity arises in Mary, who undoes the knot of sin tied by Eve then that sort of cancels the Vas Christum tribet, what drives Christ. Sort of cancels that principle. Or at least it can hold it at bay. So church teaching does not... I mean, just think of these discussions that have been going around the Roman church about the possibility of calling Mary a co-redemptrix. How could you ever even be conceiving... Of a co-anything with Christ if he's in the center. So, so th- this, these are the three essential differences. Let me just put this up here. So this is Reformed. And this is Roman Catholic. And this is Lutheran. And this makes all the difference in the world in terms of when you're having a discussion with somebody, what you're finally appealing to, and whether or not you can make any headway in the argumentation. Okay. Andy, thanks for bringing that up so I could uh, uh, clarify that point, and I did want to make this, uh, this point as well. You're, you'll hear a lot more about this from uh, Chuck Aaron, uh, if you have him in the uh, Confessions 1 course. Now, for the balance of the period, I want to talk about textual criticism. Dan? Was there a term you want to use with the last one, the one? you got Christ centric, uh, I don't know, Didosco centric or something like that. I, I, I'm not sure what I would say. It's just centered on the teaching magisterium. It's. Um, uh, it's uh, well, maybe uh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, maybe you want to say it's kind of ecclesiocentric, church-centered, and whatever you know, the church. Maybe that might be a good way to put it. Um, now, the the business of text criticism, in my view, is a very key topic and you handle it either in two weeks or 20 minutes. Those are your choices. We're doing the 20-minute one. All right? So you either sort of get all the details down, or you get the basics of what the whole discipline is trying to do. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Now, first of all, what is the reason for the study? Now, you've you got to have this in mind, guys. Just got to have this in mind. The reason is because there are variants in all the texts that we have, both Old Testament and New Testament, and no two texts are absolutely 100% identical. So, in other words, You have to do textual criticism simply because of the situation. Let me show you. I'm going to put this on camera here now. Let me show you this. Here is a page from a book by Ruben Swanson um, on the text of Mark. And what they've done is they've taken Manuscript B, Vaticanus, and they've put it across the top line. There are no underlinings on this uh... uh... top line and there are no blanks and now what they've done is they've laid out all kinds of manuscripts down here and they have put this line which is one two three four five six seven eight nine ten words and look how many variants Now, now some of them are not significant at all this has a funny spelling of mikroturon it's with an epsilon yoda so all of the manuscripts that have just the Yoda, Mikra, Terun, are variants, and they're underlined. Here's ones that have the same spelling. So what you have with this layout, unlike your nestle Allen text, you, have, you can see with this kind of a layout perfectly what the other manuscripts have as additions compared to manuscript B and subtractions because there would be a blank. You'll notice... Here, right before the last word, ponton, there is a uh, hun. But some manuscripts right here, like A and C and so on, don't have that word. Here also, and here also. This one manuscript has an additional word, ha, here. But I just want you to take a look at this. On every line, there's something. Now, usually it's just kind of insignificant, like a spelling. Or instead of scribes and Pharisees, it's Pharisees and scribes, or something like that. So I don't want to overplay this as if, I mean, this is the way I usually describe it. It's not like this, that there are some manuscripts around where somebody slipped a knot into John 3.16. God did not so love the world. I mean, it's not like that. Those aren't the kind of manuscripts variations. But there are there are variations that um, that occur all over the place. Now what would then be our source for these readings? What is it? Well there are manuscripts around all over the place and I'm going to pass around to the class now some resources that I've picked up and uh, I, I'm going to show these here on the screen first, but then I'll pass them around. This is uh, Codex Sinaiticus. Now, Codex Sinaiticus is a, uh, one of the great uh, major codices from the 4th or early 5th centuries, and you're going to be able to see how beautifully this is written. You can also see how there isn't separation of words and how the things are all in columns and so on like that. And the major manuscripts that we have for the New Testament look like this. Now, back in November of uh, 2007, there was a... um, there was a convention, well, no, it's 2006. There was a convention of the Society of Biblical Literature in Washington, D.C., which I went to. And wouldn't you know it, in conjunction with this, there was a huge manuscript display at the Smithsonian Institution. And they published this interesting book called In the Beginning Bibles Before the Year 1000. This was absolutely fantastic as a display. Now, in here, and I'll pass this around, you will see, first of all, on this page, an example of an Old Testament manuscript, the Aleppo Codex, which would be like the Leningrad Codex that you guys probably heard about in Hebrew. You'll see a sample of that. Then, the next thing along is a a sample of P64, which is one of the oldest things we have. Look how much of it there is ta ta that is P64 all right which is actually just some words okay now th- this is on that is on papyrus also on papyrus is the great collection of the Bodmer papyri and here you have this from Ann Arbor Michigan and this is also um, some of these are also in uh, in Dublin Scotland you'll you'll see this a lot better as it comes around then uh, over on page 29 here we've got not on not on uh, papyrus but on parchment an example of the kind of interesting cursive hand of Codex W Washingtoniensis and finally on these pages some wonderful examples of the illuminations that were done on the middle age manuscript. So I've got little markers in there with what they are. Let me start passing this around. You can see it. Uh, so that gives you an impression or an idea of what it is that we have as resources, as resources. Now This next part, for the next 10-15 minutes, is the most important part of the lecture for today. In order to do textual criticism, you have got to have some theory of what your sources are like and what you're trying to do. Okay, first important point you are not trying to find the correct manuscript because there is no one manuscript that is sort of error-free or something like that they all have some sorts of variations now this is actually a very important point because it leads you to point number two. What you're trying to do is to recreate the text, not find the manuscript that is the text. Now I'm going to say that again. This is really key. You're trying to create, recreate the text from the evidence available. That's like in these books that are coming around here you're not trying to just go around and say, hey, of these manuscripts, which one is the best one? Now, that's an awful important point because it means you're not looking, for example, for the oldest manuscript or you're not looking for the most beautifully written manuscript or you're not looking for one that's necessarily written on papyrus. As far as we can see, there is no unbroken tradition of the Old Testament or the New Testament text. There is no unbroken tradition. Now, if you'll take your books, let's just look at chapter 3 under Old Testament. Now, go to page 65. Well, actually, we can start on, on uh, uh, here. Page 64, I think, is better. Page 64, number 2. Unlike the method of transmission of the New Testament, schools arose specifically to preserve and to transmit one textual tradition of the Old Testament. The Masoretes, you know the Masoretic text, that phrase, who formed these schools were active in two time periods especially, 1st to 3rd century A.D., and later the 8th to 10th century A.D. The first epoch was located in Palestine in the north and Babylonia, and the second in Palestine, Tiberias by itself. Now, what I want you to notice is, that's actually comparatively late. So what we're saying is, you know, everybody has this, uh, you hear this in Sunday school, about how excruciatingly the Masoretes handed down the Old Testament text. They counted letters and found the middle letter and all that kind of stuff. And it's all described for you in chapter 3. But, that's all done first from the time of Christ onward, and much farther onward, eighth to 10th century. Thus that um, uh, Grayson, let me just have this a second. Thus, this first thing that I have for you to take a look at, which is the Aleppo Codex, which is the oldest kind of complete man well, the, uh, some of it got burned after 1948 but uh, you know this this one right here this one um, is made in the 10th century first and it's essentially that kind of manuscript like Leningrad which is a little later than it are the basis for our Old Testament Masoretic text but you know what it's like it's like doing this it's like saying how far is it? What's the, what's the length, the distance between the edge of where the cameras are and that wall? And I go 5, 10, 15, and probably a half, so let's call it uh, 17 and a half feet. Okay? I've paced it off, and my pacing is pretty accurate as 2 to 5. Now, you guys really accurately hang down the distance as 17 feet. Well, that's fine, but what about my initial measurement? See? So, you might have a perfectly accurate handing on of a flawed text. So, you know, don't overplay this Masoretic thing. Because this is all A.D. stuff. Now, I want you to uh, take a look also. Um, I can just put this up for you here. Uh, this is uh, in your supplemental work. Remember this chart here with all of the manuscripts? And in the, front, in the top here, I had autographs, and I called it the pre-200 soup. And essentially, after 200, four traditions developed here of uh, uh, textual reading types. But before that, eh, you can't say this. You can't say, you know, this text looks like these and this one looks like these. They're kind of mix and match. It's important on this diagram... You see, I have Alexandrian, Caesarean, Western, and Byzantine. It's important on this diagram to realize that once you get a little bit later, that is to say, from about 200 to 600, essentially, the readings in the New Testament manuscripts sort of coalesce into four streams. It's it's almost, I mean, this is an analogy. It's not the way it worked. But it's almost like you had four different editors and they each kind of did their own version like that. You have four streams that began to coalesce, well, interestingly enough, around major centers of Christianity. Alexandria, Caesarea, then the Western text could be like Rome and Byzantium or possibly Antioch in Syria. So, you could kind of see how this would work. However, that's sort of, you know, look at the diagram here. That's sort of a later stage. You know, that's post 200. Earlier than that, there's manuscripts, and I'm speaking anachronistically now manuscripts whose readings look like a combination of two editorial streams, or maybe even three. They, And in fact, a lot of books will describe it like that. Oh, this is sort of Alexandrian and Western. You know, that's actually an anachronistic way to talk, because to say, well, you know, there's a whole Alexandrian kind of tradition of editing, and a Caesarean, and a Western one, that's really a little bit later. Earlier than that, it looks like there's this kind of, what I like to call a primordial soup. And... There's variations, but it doesn't fall out like that. Now, Welt's general observation. The same primordial soup occurs with the Old Testament before the 2nd century A.D. Now, one of the things, this is, what I'm going to put up here is a very significant point. The most significant discovery in Qumran, in my opinion, very easy, most significant discovery in Qumran was the various texts of the Old Testament that did not conform to the Masoretic text. And they were in Hebrew. So for the very first time you found Septuagint, Greek Old Testament texts, in Hebrew. Now, only 5% of the Qumran texts are are Hebrew texts that look like the Septuagint. 60% are congruent with what we know as the Masoretic text. This is the text tradition that the Masoretes handed down so precisely at Tiberias. Then, you have more, a whole bunch more, that are mixed texts. So, Qumran, we know, is pre-70. Essentially, when the Romans destroyed everything in Judea, at Jerusalem especially, it seemed to kind of shut everything down this way, and what was preserved in the caves is essentially what was around after uh, up to 70. Now, what's interesting is when you get to the Bar Kokhba Revolt, which is a last revolt of of around 133 to 135 A.D., From about that time onward, the Masoretic text has total dominance. The one that you have in your Hebrew Bibles that is the Leningrad Codex. So, in other words, between 70, you know, in about 60 years, it seems like one textual tradition became dominant. And that's sort of what happened with the chart I have on the board. The Byzantine text started to arise, those kinds of readings, you know. And then, as you go down here, the vast majority of all manuscripts are like this from around 600 A.D. onward. Now notice the early medieval consensus. Notice under Alexandrian over here, we still have a number of manuscripts that so to speak maintain that tradition. But the vast majority, you might say that the Byzantine type of manuscript here uh, what is called the majority text in your book, uh, that that kind of wins out. So it's the same thing that you have here with the Old Testament. Exactly the same thing. Now My theory on this is as follows. If you take a look, it's interesting to me that this primordial soup sort of stops at around, not stops, but it's before 200. And by about 200, you start getting some definite streams of interpretation. It's about 200 that the major center of the New Testament canon is set. You have the Humalegumina. They are all absolutely agreed upon. Actually the Megalion, the four gospels and the Apostolicon, the Pauline epistles are agreed upon already early in the second century. But essentially by 180-200 there is no question of the Humalegumina. Now, here's my point. I'm letting the other shoe drop here. And that is, I think that there is always a relationship between the setting of a canon and the establishing of the textual tradition. So when you say, hey, it's these books that are authoritative, not these over here, then the other shoe dropping is, Well, what's the text of those books? Which are the manuscripts we ought to be reading now that we've said that those are the authoritative books? So essentially, uh, you've got this this much more uh, fluid, that's a good word, much more fluid situation before 133, And you have a much more fluid situation, uh, that's for the Old Testament, and you have a much more fluid situation in the New Testament before 200. Now, uh, so essentially, what you're going to be doing here now is you are going to be trying to recreate the original text. Footnote, what's the original text? Could it be that some authors did several versions of their books? I discuss in What Does This Mean, that there is good evidence that John maybe produced two editions of the Gospel of John. One that ended at chapter 20, and one that included chapter 21. And there's at least one manuscript that looks like it wouldn't have enough room to have the 21st chapter in it. Some of the pages are missing at the end. So, I mean, I realize when I say this, you know, we're doing the 20-minute version here. I can't go into all this, but you know, there's always a question, which one is it that you're trying to recreate? You know, and and I guess it would be the latest edition by the guy, or something like that. Now, generally with the letters you're figuring that there would be the first letter is the letter. You're not figuring you could rework it like a narrative. All right. How do you do this? How do you recreate the original text? You do it not by looking for the oldest text or the reading that's the most widely attested, or the reading that's on parchment. You do it by trying to recreate scribal habits and to see where the errors would have arisen. Now, I want to show you what I mean. I have here a quote. Uh, this is from mid morning Prayer in chapel. Okay, okay, it it shows up okay. Let's all say together the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, okay? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I heard a few as it is in heaven, and I myself actually made the mistake. How many said that? Okay, that's the kind of error scribes would make they would insert more common material into the text to, uh, for less familiar material. Did any of you say, Our Father who art in heaven? Okay, see, it's the same kind of thing. And you know what we find? You know what we actually find in the, in the Bible? We will find, let's say, between the Gospels, you will have Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, which is shorter than the Methian one, and then there are manuscripts that lengthen all of Luke's phrases to make it like Matthew. See, Because that would be the familiar way to do it. This is just an illustration of what I'm talking about. It's just what we did. This would be called assimilation to what's more familiar. All right, now, in general, what, do, what did scribes do, do you think? Well... here's generally what's thought. They would pick the easier reading, the one that didn't create such grammatical difficulty. They would pick readings that were more familiar to them. If you're dealing with something like the Gospels, they try to smooth out difficulties between the two Gospels, like Luke's Lord's Prayer winds up looking like Matthew's Lord's Prayer. They would also um, uh, seek, uh, perhaps later, later, we see this in later manuscripts, once things like fasting and asceticism took hold, they would insert some things about that. But whatever it is, they try to kind of clear up difficulties and assimilate the text to what they know just the way you guys did when you were doing the Lord's Prayer. And I even, in a way, had warned you. I said, okay, now we're going to do this with scribal habits. Let's just all read this out loud, you know. Um, So, I mean, you should have been sort of suspicious of what I was up to with something like that. But it's something that happens very naturally. Now, um, scribes, also would have had a difficulty if the manuscript they're copying would have been, had some had some ripped pages that they couldn't see or if they were in a scriptorium where it was being read out just like this so i'd say okay everybody we're going to copy the gospel of mark <clears throat> the beginning of and then you all write all right now you all of a sudden you have auditory problems so if i say there Some of you might spell it T-H-E-R-E and some T-H-E-I-R. Two, T-O-O, T-W-O, T-O. So depending on the medium of transmission, there can be errors of sight or errors of sound. Um, You know, it's very interesting that I got a paper from a guy named Gan a number of years ago commenting on textual criticism. And he said that he was at the University of Vienna at one point and was taking German paleography, uh, manuscripts of German and so on like this. And uh, he says, part of the challenge of the course was learning to read another cursive alphabet and to decipher people's bad handwriting in that unfamiliar alphabet. To add to the challenge, sometimes the documents were hard to read because of the ravages of time. Or were written down in unusual ways. Martin Luther was especially bad for this last one, with notes and additions scribbled all over the place on his autographs. So he added other comments. Well, then you're wondering what was the original, what was added later. Then he says this When transcribing the autographs and other manuscripts, I occasionally made the scribal error of skipping a line in the text. Sometimes I thought I saw one word when the author really had written another a similar one. Other times, I wasn't sure what a letter was, so I just guessed. So that is exactly the kind of thing that would have gone on. Disclaimer. The videotapes from that time have been burned. We do not actually know that this is true. All right, It's logically true. It's apparently true. It seems true by the evidence. But nobody could actually prove that you didn't have, right before the manuscript went out, uh, somebody paid everybody to make certain changes or something. I mean, there's no way to honestly know. And I just want to be upfront about this that contemporary textual criticism actually rides upon what I would call sociological or anthropological truths of how people transmit manuscripts. Now, it's just a disclaimer, and everybody's got to know that up front, because usually this is taught by people as if somehow we actually know that a scribe in the eighth century did that, you know. Uh, but it seems logical, but it's it's not not on tape, so to speak. <clears throat> so therefore we come to the basic principle of textual criticism, and this is the next major important point. And that is, you look for the reading that explains the rise of the other readings. So, you ask yourself... If I choose this reading, can I see how a scribe would have made an adjustment to the other readings? Or is it actually more logical that I have to have this reading over here and the scribe would have made the adjustment the other way? So, in other words, let me take a simple example. In the Lord's Prayer. In the Lord's Prayer in Luke, you have some manuscripts that read the identical uh, petitions to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew now you ask yourself what's more logical that Luke actually wrote the identical prayer that Matthew had and then later some copyist came and made another version that wasn't congruent with it or is it more logical that Luke's was a little different to begin with, and then people smoothed out the difficulty. Okay? Well, exactly, Andy. And so the thing is, you take the second as the logical way in which it was done. And so sometimes this is known as the principle of the harder reading, or in Latin, deflectio uh, lectio difficilior, the more difficult lection the more difficult reading it's actually better the formulation I put at the top of the board is actually better the reading that explains the rise of the other readings because often that won't be necessarily more difficult but that's another way to put it so essentially if you if you put it in in this way essentially scribes tended to eliminate difficulties and smooth things out you know as an example you have a hina clause. Almost all manuscripts have a subjunctive following. A few manuscripts will have an indicative following. Well, which one is grammatically correct? Hinna plus the subjunctive. So it's likely that the guy wrote an indicative and the people said, no, 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 it's not hinna do su sin, it's hinna do so sin. So, uh, uh, because he doesn't want St. Paul to be doing grammatical errors, something like that. Listen, that's the logical way to do it, but I suppose there's nobody who can really prove that it couldn't have gone the other way, and the scribe actually was really badly trained in grammar and actually had it wrong, you know, or something like that. But you have hit exactly on the way the principle works. And so, essentially, now, given that, Given the Lectio Difficilior principle, or the principle, if you choose the reading, that explains the rise of the other readings. Given that, in many respects, it's not actually that important that you learn all of those specific manuscripts on the chart. Because all of these, like Aleph and A and B and C and so on like that, all of those are significant and everything, but you know what? You're not just looking for the Alexandrian tradition. You're not just looking for the Caesarean tradition. What are you looking for? At each given place, the reading that explains the rise of the other readings. That's what you're doing. Now listen to the next part. When you do this, looking for the reading that explains the rise of the other readings, okay? When you do this on an individual basis, reading after reading after reading, here's what you find. You find that some manuscripts do a better job than others. That when you make the decision, hey, this manuscript always seems to be doing the harder reading you know this manuscript seems you know 90% of the time to be doing the reading that explains the rise of the other readings so that's what you would call a quote better manuscript now i'm going to just amplify this with a couple of sentences it's a better manuscript not cuz it's older not cuz it's written on parchment or not cuz it's written on papyrus not cuz you found it in the West or the East or Egypt, but it's a better manuscript because at so many points when you make a decision, it seems to do the right thing. It seems to have the more difficult readings at almost every point. Now, guys, let's relate this specifically then to the Old and the New Testament. In the New Testament, in general the alexandrian tradition preserves the better readings, and that's probably one of the reasons why even after the six hundreds in the early medieval period there are still important manuscripts that preserve this tradition when we go over to the other side of the page to the vast majority of manuscripts which are themselves Byzantine, this tends to be a more smoothed out reading. That's the one where the difficulties will be eliminated. Switch to the Old Testament. When you look at the readings and you try to find which textual tradition generally has readings that explain the rise of the other readings, it's the Masoretic text, not the Septuagint. Now, the other shoe's got to drop, though. The Masoretic text and the Alexandrian tradition are not right all the time. And so you do not have a silver bullet here that all we do is we look for the Alexandrian text here. Okay, all right, we look for Aleph, A, B, C, and so on, and we don't even have to do text criticism. No, that's the cheap, you know, quick and dirty nuclear option but it's not the best option that's the option that you use if somebody makes you do a reading in five seconds but if you have time to look at it you better look at the reading that explains the rise of the other readings. you know what this would be like this is the best way to think about it you'll see this in my book and other people talk about it too the manuscripts are often better described as witnesses than they are as sources they're witnesses to the text and here's why i like that phrase because i mean isn't this true guys some witnesses are more reliable than other witnesses why because they tell the truth even if it's uncomfortable that'd be like the more difficult reading but no witness is infallible and completely perfect. So therefore you do have I mean like the saying goes from contract bridge you trust your mother but you still cut the cards. Okay? So you you still have to at each point check what is likely to be the more difficult reading or the reading that explains the rise of the other readings. Now in general what you will find when you do this just looking at this is alexandrian and western texts are very unlike each other alexandrian are very short they tend to be very difficult readings and the western is very expansive like a paraphrase actually and and thus one of the little cheap quick and dirty you know dirty and nuclear things that people look at is if you get a manuscript from the Alexandrian tradition like B, and it agrees with D, that's actually pretty strong evidence because it's like Sean Hannity and Alan Combs agreeing with each other. See, If those two agree, maybe this might be the way something is. So you've got a very conservative and a very liberal version of it, and when those two agree hmm, you better pay attention. Um, What I'm telling you now is extremely important for the Old Testament. And here's where I want to admonish you to be very dubious about the text criticism of some of our Old Testament professors. That is to say, they are way too devoted to the Masoretic text. You can't be. The longer Old Testament textual criticism goes on, the more it becomes like New Testament text criticism. That is to say, we've got some reliable tradition, but it's never 100% right. And therefore, what do you have to do? Look for the reading that explains the rise of the other readings. And when you look for that reading that explains the rise of the other readings, 95% of the time the Masoretic text is right. Or the way to go, the way to go. But there will be some others where all of a sudden you're thinking, you know what, the Septuagint and the Old Latin and the Syriac all themselves have a reading that actually explains the rise of the Masoretic text. Then you have to go that way. Okay, so um, this will, uh, given, given this sort of set of principles, you will be just fine on that small text criticism part of the test. Basically, I'm going to be asking you to take a look at a variant reading in each Testament, kind of decipher it, and then decide which one do you think is better and why, and so forth. And so you ought to be doing it on this kind of basis. Now, essentially, essentially <clears throat> and I've left this up here these masoretic texts here along with the Bo- uh, sahidic and Bohiric, those are coptic uh, versions and origin and so on those tend generally to be pretty good witnesses in this alexandrian rather strict sort of tradition and my own view is of the new testament is that Essentially what happened in the development of the textual tradition is that um, there arose, there really arose two versions of the way to do the New Testament text. The strict view and the living Bible view. And see, if, if you go and get a living Bible, it's no sense excoriating it as, hey, that ain't a really strict translation. It's not trying to be and I think that they also produced some examples like that in the New Testament as well the D and the Western text I think are like that they're essentially like the Aramaic Targums which are described for you in addendum 3a which are Aramaic paraphrases or expansive renderings of the Greek for the understanding of the people in other words I think the Jewish tradition had this in it there's the strict version and there's the not-so-strict, really more explanatory version. I think we find that with the New Testament text as well. Yeah? What's that EAPR thing? Like? Oh, that's, that's which sections of the New Testament they actually have uh, readings for. E, Evangelium, is Gospels. A is uh, Acts of the Apostles and the Catholic Epistles together. P is Pauline, and R is Revelatio, Revelation. Yeah. So, in other words, it says there that Aleph does actually have manuscript evidence for all of those sections. And doesn't like the Nestle Allen when they're doing that, like picking which their text. They do that text type theory thing, so they basically just pick Alexandrian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most of the time, that's exactly right. This, this is the text type theory here. Yeah. Yeah, but you're saying—that's that's not the way. To do you, can, you cannot. You, you, you really cannot just go like that because the, the better, better texts still have problematical readings. Now, actually, what the argument comes down to is whether or not you're going to be a thoroughgoing eclectic. Eclectic, you can pick a text from any tradition. See, Thoroughgoing, or whether you're what's called a reasoned eclectic. And by that, I mean this. A guy like Jeff Kloa, who is what's called a thoroughgoing eclectic, he will pick a reading even if it's supported by only one manuscript and even a late one. I'm dubious about that process because I'm kind of thinking, you know, it's unlikely historically that the correct reading went underground for eight centuries and suddenly came up, you know, in Armenia or something like that. Uh, r- yeah, r- rigorous. Yeah, yeah, r- rigorous eclectic. But but both of them are eclecticism because it's not saying I'm trying to find the oldest reading or the Alexandrian reading or the widely dispersed reading or the one on papyrus. You know, it's not saying any of that stuff. Yeah, you're just looking for the reading, whichever tradition it is that explains the rise of the other readings. And you can still be a reason to collect it and be a text theory or type theory person. Well, you can because your, your theory would be that essentially most of the time the Alexandrian is going to do the job for you. Yeah, most of the time. Yeah, Oz. Awesome. All right. You said something about the variant readings for the test or whatever. Are those variant readings going to be found in our, in our VHS? And... Yes. Okay. Now, guys, hold on. This is our last class. I want to tell you how much. Uh, I have enjoyed this class. It's been a really good class. Really enjoyed your papers. Uh, let's close the class with a prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you have given us so much to think about in addition to all of the many blessings and gifts that you give to us every day. We thank you for our time together, for the stimulation of the problems of interpreting your word and the opinions of one another. Help us to keep focused on Jesus Christ, our Lord, he who has died for our sins and risen again for our justification. In this Pentecost week, send us your Holy Spirit so that we may truly be devoted to your word and be ready to speak its message of hope to all whom we meet. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks a lot, guys.